Hello all and warmest welcomes to an almost lockdown-free edition of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, North Wales' premier one-person true crime show that looks for and recounts the often obscure, the forgotten or unfamiliar crimes, both the solved ones and the unsolved ones, from all corners of the UK and Ireland. Looking for these for yourselves is myself, Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. You guys are the enthusiasts that keep me working at doing this each week, but it's absolutely brilliant having you back with me again. And as you listen in, I hope that each of you and yours are all good and you're all safe and well. So firstly, thank you so much for the feedback and remarks about this season's multi-parter, Maniac. All of the episodes of it are out now for listening, by the way. I was so pleased to bring it you, and for the recent review that I kindly got moaning about my use of the ARC word throughout it, well, it's a multi-episode portion of a usually standalone episodic series that looks at a specific case, so I think it's only fitting to refer to it as an ARC. I didn't know what else to call it. But thank you very much for taking the time out to leave that review, knocking stars off for me for doing so, though. Some people are a bloody tough crowd, aren't they, eh? Moving on from the highly strung, all of your comments and feedback really has been greatly appreciated folks, and from what I gather, Maniac's been well received. It's definitely the most audacious tale that I've done on the show to date, but it's one that I thoroughly enjoyed researching and writing. It's brilliant bringing you a case study like that. Now I've already tentatively chosen next series' similar offering, I don't know if it'll end up as long as Maniac ran, or if indeed it will end up being the one that I've chosen. But who knows, we'll see when we're there. I'm pleased to say also that thanks to those who have kindly donated to the show's ongoing fundraising appeal for Macmillan Cancer Support, we've smashed 60% of the target total right now, and that's absolutely amazing for such a worthwhile cause. You guys rule, you really do. Others who rule this time around are both the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show, with shout-outs going out to Kelly McMaster, David Clark, Danny Prince, Stacey Maxwell, Victoria Howard, Rosie Chexfield, Rachel Fenton, Matt Stapleton, Addie Buckland, David J. Osborne, Patrick Legg and Susan. Thanks very much guys, your support of the show means the world and I hope that you've gotten on top of the unreleased bonus episodes. You've got The Beauty in the Bikini, Horrors Over the Holidays and the Teddington Lock Towpath Killings to name just a couple of them plus the items that have been sent out for some of you. If any of you guys have had your fancies tickled and fancy a bit more enthusiast as a Patreon supporter, or you wish to kindly donate to the show's fundraiser, then you're more likely to find Greta Thunberg spraying hairspray about outside and then fly tipping than find either of them hard to do. On the Patreon site, it's simply the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. It's got the same show logo, so you can't miss it. And a link to both this and the show fundraiser can also be found either with the episode show notes here or pinned up as an announcement in the show's Facebook discussion group. Patreon bonus episode 30 will be out just in a few days also. As I mentioned in the final part of Maniac, this time around looking at a bit of a higher profile than usual unsolved case from the early 1990s, one that I hope you can join me for too. So this episode of the show is that time each series where I hand over writing duties to you, the listener, for a case or cases that you've researched and written up. I'm always thrilled hosting these episodes and I'm always impressed with the choice of cases that you guys seek out. 
which in past series have brought tales ranging from Pontypreeth dismemberments right through to knuckleheads selling death via steroid, or Mid Wales drug manufacturing to murders of Manchester gangland. Now the tale I'm bringing this episode is a single account, but one of the most memorable, powerful tales that there is. It was a case that I knew of, but one I hadn't studied in depth, and not one I'd considered for the show before it was researched, written, and presented to me by listener Louise Broderick, which is especially thrilling also, because Louise is herself a published author, having released a sixth book in January of this year. Now the book's entitled After, and it's a book that introduces Louise's character D.I. Grace Tallis, and it poses what must be the most unimaginable question there is. What if your father had killed your mother? When eight-year-old Mia's father commits suicide, it stops a killing spree that costs ten young women their lives. Adopted and nurtured by a loving family, 15 years later, the world shatters for them when a visit from the police brings news that more of Mia's father's victims have been discovered, amongst them Mia's mother, who she long thought had abandoned her. As Mia begins to discover the painful reality that was her childhood, she feels the fragile foundations of her life crumbling around her. Is she the product of the family who nurtured her, or the blood-soaked genes that she carries? Sounds intriguing, that, eh? Links to Louise's books and website will be within the episode's show notes, and the episode you're about to hear is another example of her work. The case covered this week takes place in the mid-1980s, and it's one that changed forever not only the lives of the victims, but also society. It accounts a truly revolting, shocking crime that is retold here in somewhat graphic detail. As ever, this isn't meant to be insensitive to the victims or to sensationalise anything, but just go all or nothing here on the enthusiast for the context of the story. I always feel a bit, tell it in full, or don't tell it at all. Now I've added very little to this, and I've only adapted the account slightly to suit my own narrative. This is all Louise's own work and research. The episode does contain details and descriptions of crimes and events, including that of a sexual nature, that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing. So as I always say here folks, please do use your discretion whilst you're listening in. Bearing that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast, and this week Louise, for a case I've entitled Evil at Ealing Vicarage. The district of Ealing, or Queen of the Suburbs as it's known, is a well-to-do suburb of West London with a population of around 80,000 people that despite its size manages to instill a leafy village atmosphere whilst affording its residents all the benefits of city life. Home of London's largest Sikh community, Ealing has both commercial and retail districts, but is more widely known for its famous film studios, said to be the oldest in the world still in operation, and which are best known for its classic British Ealing comedy films, among them The Lady Killers, St Trinian's and Passport to Pimlico. Other stats about Ealing include it being the birthplace of late actress and comedian Carolina Hearn and TV presenter Fern Britton, several episodes of long-running flying telephone box nonsense Doctor Who take place there. For the Brits of a certain age who are listening in really, 70s and 80s children's show Rent-A-Ghost was set there, 
I used to have a science teacher in school we used to call Claypole, who was one of the characters in it, and he used to go absolutely mad about it. It was a great show back in the day. But my favourite stats for this episode, and the second similar in as many weeks, is that it's at the Ealing Jazz Club, nice, that back in 1962, a certain Brian Jones met a certain Mick Jagger and a certain Keith Richards, who went on to chuck a tune or two together in something that became the Rolling Stones. I wish it had been Pink Floyd who had met there, but you can't always get what you want, can you? As the vicar of St Mary's Church in Ealing, Michael Sourd, looked out of his study window on the afternoon of Thursday, March the 6th, 1986, he felt that spring was beginning to show its presence after a bitterly cold winter. Although a light smattering of snow still lay on the ground, the temperatures were beginning to rise and the vicarage where he and his family lived, next to St Mary's Church on Ealing's Church Road, may at last start not feeling as cold as it had been. Michael, who was also prebendary of St Paul's Cathedral, had been the vicar of St Mary's since 1978, but as a bit of an off point of note, his maternal grandfather, Henry George Kendall, had been the captain of the Montrose, the transatlantic ship on which Dr Hawley Harvey Crippen and his lover, Ethel Lunev, had attempted to flee justice on following the murder of Crippen's wife Cora in 1910. Captain Kendall had recognised the disguised Crippen, had invited him to dine at his table to check further, and when he was certain, he so set in motion the first ever ship-to-shore message used to capture a criminal, as police were awaiting Crippen and they arrested him when the ship docked in Canada. But I digress. Inside the vicarage that afternoon, alongside Michael, were his 21-year-old daughter Jill, and a 20-year-old boyfriend of three months, David Kerr. The Sowards had lived in the relatively modern build since 1978, and they loved the five-bedroom vicarage greatly. The family, Michael and his wife Jacqueline, the children Rachel, Joe, and the twin daughters Jill and Sue, who were known by the family as Snidge and Pug, respectively, had moved to Elin from a parish where the vicarage had been a lot smaller, and the children, especially the twins, were thrilled to be finally able to have a bedroom each, having had to share before due to space wherever their father had previously been curate. David and Jill had met three months previously at her previous job as a cleaner at the YMCA in Ealing, a job that she hadn't enjoyed and not stayed at long as she didn't get on with her boss. David had moved down from Scotland to look for a job in London and had for a time been working as a security guard, though he aspired to join the police. When his security guard job had folded, David got a temporary job labouring on a building site and had met Jill three weeks later when his shared room at the YMCA became mouldy due to condensation and David had to be moved. Jill had helped him move his bags and possessions, they got talking, he later asked her out and she accepted. Now while their backgrounds couldn't be more different, the daughter of a middle class vicar and the son of a working class welder, The two had clicked immediately. By March, Jill and David had been together just three months, but were already sure that they had a future together. Whilst Jill was outgoing and gregarious, because of how she'd been brought up, she also had strong Christian beliefs, and had decided to remain a virgin until she was married, which David had of course accepted. 
On that Thursday afternoon then, the 6th of March, both Jill and David were at the time unemployed. Jill's mum was working a shift in Sainsbury's in Ealing, a job that she'd taken previously to help pay for the children's school fees. Jill's sister Sue was also out at work, Rachel and Joe were both out, and Michael was working in his study, preparing for a staff meeting which was to be held just over an hour later. Making the most of their time off together, Jill and David snuggled down on the sofa for a relaxing afternoon watching the Sullivans and Knott's Landing on TV. I remember my mum watching both of them too back in the day. David had his arm around Jill and life for the two could not have felt any better. Their lives were about to shatter. As David and Jill were settling down to the TV, three men were making their way to the door of the Vicarage of St Mary's having spent the morning drinking vodka, which they'd stolen from a nearby off-licence. They weren't there to ask about church services. A short time later, a movement outside caught David and Jill's eye, and the pair looked up to see a scruffy man saunter past the living room window. Now it wasn't unusual to see someone in the vicarage grounds. People often took a shortcut through there to the alleyway behind the house, be it drunks from the local pub going home or parents heading to the school next door, a large stream of people regularly passed by. Spotting the two of them inside on the sofa, the man saluted them as he passed with a cocky gesture of greeting. David just assumed he was the gardener and used to a constant stream of people coming to the vicarage, thought nothing of the man being there. Then a moment later, at 12.45pm, the front doorbell rang, and Jill and David were only vaguely aware of Jill's father heading to and opening the front door. Seconds later, their peace was shattered, and the lives of none of the occupants of the vicarage would ever be the same again. The man who had saluted Jill and David through the window was a local drug addict, 22-year-old Martin McCall who had walked on ahead of his two companions to the front door of the Eland Vicarage. With him were 22-year-old Christopher Byrne and a career criminal, 34-year-old Robert Horsecroft. All three had been armed with knives and, as we said, had been drinking heavily that morning. It transpired later that the gang were never meant to be at the Vicarage that day. They had intended to rob an old lady's house further down the road, but she had spoken to them from an upstairs window and feeling uneasy, wouldn't open the door to strangers outside. Thwarted, they had gone onwards, and eventually had noticed the vicarage nearby. So opening the door, before he realised what had happened, Michael Sawad was pushed back into the hallway at knife point by Martin McCall, and the three men, each wielding knives and their faces now hidden by balaclavas, made their way into the house, unleashing a nightmare of violence, cruelty and abuse that would eventually change the lives of so many people. Engrossed in their television programme, Jill and David spotted who they thought at first was a workman come into the room. Engineers from British Telecom had been working at the house the day before and they were so used to people just coming and going into the house, they at first considered that the repairmen were just back to finish their job. This man left, and a moment later a second man came in, which was when they realised something was terribly wrong. The man, 
brandishing a knife, his face concealed by a balaclava, shouted, Move! 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 and forced Jill and David out into the hall. The men demanded to know where the safe was in the vicarage, shouting, Where's the money? Where do you keep the safe? Where's the money? And David, though terrified and wanting to protect Jill, tried to calm the men down, saying, Oh, calm down, please calm down. Instead, Jill was taken into her father's study, where she found her dad, his wallet on the desk, surrounded by the upturned cash boxes from the church collection. The men, looking at the meagre takings, quickly divided the money up between themselves, and Michael, hoping to defuse the situation, tried to placate them by telling them, Come now, gentlemen, there's no money in the vicarage. Instead of which, his words just added to the tense situation and made them angrier. Clearly irritated that there was no money, McCall, who Jill would later come to think of and refer to as Man 2, brought David into the room and held the knife to Jill's chin, threatening to cut her throat. As Michael once again told them that this was a vicarage and there was no money there, Robert Horscroft, who Jill was to think of as Man 1, worried and perhaps beginning to realise for the first time that things were getting out of hand because of the violent thug that he had with him, told the gang members that he would take Jill upstairs to look for loot, while the others guarded David and her father. When David tried to follow, one of the men began to strike him. Now what could he do against three terrifying men with knives? It's hard to imagine how helpless he must have felt then, let alone for the mental torment of what happened next. Jill, meanwhile, felt that the man who had taken her upstairs at knife point was older than the others, despite only being able to see his eyes. She was aware of him being stocky, pot-bellied and smaller than her, around 5 feet 7 inches tall. As he rummaged through her possessions, Horscroft said to Jill, Remember, I was kind to you. So finding nothing of value, Horscroft took Jill into her parents' room. She watched as he pulled open jewellery boxes and tipped them onto the bed, selecting a gold watch, a ruby cluster ring and a gold chain. When they went back downstairs, Michael and David were laid on the floor face down with their trousers round their ankles, whilst Man 2, McCall, and Christopher Byrne, Man 3, guarded them. When they'd returned from upstairs, infuriated by being thwarted at what he expected would be a hefty haul of loot, McCall looked at Jill and told his companions ominously, I like her, she's meat. He then grabbed Jill, holding the 8-inch kitchen knife to her throat, and telling his two companions, I'm having that meat. Jill was taken back upstairs at knife point. Whilst Jill was dragged upstairs, the other men ransacked the vicarage. Now the following contains a disturbing and graphic account of a sex crime. I'd normally sanitise such things unless it was integral to express the true horror of the situation. But within the context of the tale, if I'd researched and written this one myself, I would have done exactly the same as Louise has. And as the tale progresses, I hope that you'll come to see why I say this. So this brave young woman, who must have had incredible inner strength, somehow managed not to panic, which probably saved her life. Much later, David was to say that Jill gulped, but stayed calm. 
He spoke later of her bravery, saying, She was a very brave woman, even then, much braver than I could ever be. Once upstairs, McCall shoved Jill into her sister Rachel's room, finding the bed heaped with soft toys and a pile of clean washing. Ordering Jill to undress, he told her, Don't you dare cry, then knocked the washing off the bed and ordered Jill to lie down, which she complied with. Through her fear, the terrified woman was aware that Mantu was over six foot tall, sturdily built, with dark greasy hair and dandruff, and smelt of beer and stale tobacco. She also noticed during the assault that the skin on his thighs was flaky and scabbed, and that above the wrist of the pink rubber gloves that he wore, Jill noticed that he had a spiderweb tattoo. When he'd finished the assault, McCall pushed Jill into her own bedroom, then shouted to Vernon Horscroft to bring the two men upstairs. As they passed Jill's bedroom, David glimpsed inside and saw his naked girlfriend being attacked by Martin McCall, before the two men were forced to lie on the landing, listening to the attack on Jill. David said later that he felt sick when he now realised that the burglary on the vicarage was spiralling in an altogether more horrific direction. He said, McCall was evil incarnate. I could see he was drug-addled and out of control, and I was terrified for Jill. I kept begging him, please don't hurt her, I love her, please don't touch her. They could hear Martin McCall swearing at Jill and ordering her to do things. David recalled, I loved Jill, she was my girlfriend. I'd never seen her naked before, and I could see this animal degrading her, and I wanted to kill him. I have never hated someone as much as I hated him that day. I was terrified he was going to kill her, and I kept turning my head shouting, Please don't harm her. I can't put into words how terrible it was. It was hell on earth. Now unquestionably, it was indeed for Jill. That goes without saying, doesn't it? But imagine too, Jill's father and her boyfriend forced to lie face down on the floor in an adjacent bedroom, with their arms tied behind their back with cable ties and their trousers round by their ankles, having to listen to their daughter and girlfriend being raped. The anguish of hearing, knowing what was happening, and being unable to stop it, it's unimaginable, isn't it? Sickeningly, it was to worsen. One of the men, while searching the garage outside, had found a cricket bat, that symbol of long, lazy Sunday afternoons and a far gentler life, and now used it to batter David and Michael around the head, fracturing both of their skulls. They also smashed David's knees. So not content with the grave injuries that they'd caused doing this, one of the men even found the time to rub green radox bath salts into David's wounds to further increase his agony. I mean, can you imagine the evil behind that? To stop David calling out, Byrne also repeatedly kicked him in the head. David told later, I can't begin to imagine how Jill's father Michael felt. All I heard was a thud, the crack of his glasses, and then nothing. I kept thinking, how can this be happening in a house of God, who was supposed to be a place of safety, not violence and rape? And what little faith I had disappeared that day. I thought, where's God? As the gang kept poking me with knives and shouting and swearing. Such was McCall's frenzy during the attack 
that he actually stabbed Horsecroft in the hand and arm when he tried to step in to stop him attacking Jill's father, telling McCall, we didn't come here for this. Horsecroft was restless and anxious to leave, knowing that the men had been in the house too long and that they should go, but McCall was like a man possessed. On her own bed, Jill noticed and pushed McCall's discarded knife onto the floor with her knee, which he noticed and grabbed before assaulting her again. Whilst he was attacking her, Byrne wandered into the room and began going through her jewellery and was invited to join in with the assault, which he did, first drawing the bedroom curtains. Both men were delighted to have discovered Jill had been a virgin as they took turns assaulting her, even using the handle of one of the knives to do so, and following the degrading spectacle, they tied Jill up with a skipping rope, then sat in her room drinking a bottle of her sister's vodka. They even had the gall to have offered Jill a sip. When interviewed years later, Jill said, I remember the attack like it was yesterday. McCall made me perform oral sex, but because I was a virgin and didn't know how to do it properly, he shouted at me. But it was the buggery that was the worst. It took me a long time to get over that, because to me, it was totally inhuman. Through the horror of it all, I wanted to get out of that room alive, so I tried to blank out what he was doing to me. You don't have time to think about what's going on in a situation like that. Your survival instinct takes over and you do what you have to do to try and save your own skin. That involved not aggravating him, not upsetting him in any way, trying to do what he was asking where humanly possible. Monstrous that isn't it eh? Absolutely monstrous. It's certainly one of the most disturbing accounts that I've heard. But what struck me especially was a claim from Jill that when McCall had motioned that he was going to insert a knife into her, she prayed that he wouldn't use the blade part, conscious of the fact that she wanted to have children. Isn't that absolutely heartbreaking and shocking beyond belief? I struggle to have words for something like that. It's just wickedness beyond belief. Absolute pure evil. This entire ordeal took place well over an hour, but at ten past one, Horsecroft had left the vicarage ahead of his accomplices. When McCall and Byrne eventually left a further 45 minutes after Horsecroft, they were joined by Byrne's 26-year-old brother Andrew, who had been with the rest of the gang that morning, but had been too drunk to accompany them to the vicarage. However, he had loitered around outside and had joined the remaining two to help carry off anything that they'd robbed. Once she heard the front door to the vicarage slam, Jill shortly managed to free herself and wrapped herself in a towel before going to help her father and David. Jill found her father and boyfriend tied up and bleeding in the spare room. Her dad was face down on the floor, his head under a chair and his wrists tied behind him with a belt. David was tied wrists to ankles and was throwing himself around trying to free himself, blood pouring from a wound on his head. An empty green radox box that had contained the bath salts that the men had poured into his wounds to further inflict agony lay on the floor beside him. Jill untied her father and turned him over, finding him barely conscious and telling her that he thought he'd been shot but there was no blood. Leaving them, Jill went to summon help 
but discovered that the phone line in her parents' bedroom, which had only been put in the day before, had been cut as well as the one in the study phone. Fortunately, the men hadn't discovered the kitchen phone and it was working, so she rang 999. A short time later, moments before the vicarage staff were due to come in for their meeting, police and an ambulance arrived and Jill, still wrapped in the towel, let them in. David was rushed immediately to Charing Cross Hospital, which had the capability of dealing with his head injury, whilst Jill and her dad were taken to Ealing Hospital in another ambulance. Once there, Jill was taken in a wheelchair to be examined, whilst the towels she'd wrapped herself in and David's sheepskin coat were taken for forensic examination. She was later to describe how she could feel blood around her mouth, and she knew that through watching television programmes, even though she longed to get cleaned up, she knew that she mustn't use the toilet or wash. Swabs were then taken from Jill's fingernails and hair, and she described how shocked she was at how little compassion the doctor showed her. After the examination, Jill was finally allowed to wash her hands and face and to rinse out her mouth. Two policewomen who had attended the hospital asked Jill for descriptions of the events and the attackers, to which Jill, on autopilot, slowly related the incident as it was transcribed. Jill was so sexually inexperienced, though, that some of the officers had to explain the terms for what she'd been through. After her family had arrived and her twin sister was taken to the vicarage to collect some clothes for Jill, finally Jill was taken to Brentford Police Station Rape Suite, somewhere she described later as a pleasant place. At 10 o'clock that night, the exhausted family were allowed to leave and stayed over with a staff member, although the questions were far from over and they were to return the following day. When they returned to the vicarage, Jill was taken upstairs to clarify the rooms that the attack had took place in, but when they left to attend another question session at the Brentford Rape Suite, it was suggested to Jill that she hide under a blanket from the already gathered media, something that she later claimed made her feel like the criminal. Sitting with the police, Jill then helped artists do photo fits of the three men and gave a 23-page statement of the events of the previous day, descriptions of the assailants and a list of missing property, the sum total being Jill's purse, a rented video of Dallas and the contents of the church collection boxes. Also taken were credit cards, an antique clock, her mum's watch, ring and a pendant of a green spider hologram, her grandmother's MBE, a locket containing a picture of Jill's grandfather and a Star of India campaign medal. Meanwhile, doctors at the respective hospitals had confirmed that Michael Sawad had a black eye and a fractured skull. So injured was he and sick so often that he had burnt his esophagus and couldn't eat for days. David had a fractured skull with a blood clot on his brain, as well as a perforated eardrum and lots of severe bruising. The next morning, when some of David's clothes were taken to the hospital for him, they were told that he was in a critical condition. The bruises were beginning to come out on his body, and the shape of the cricket bat used to strike him could clearly be seen in them. He was ultimately to be in a coma for 10 days. By the following day, the Saturday, the attack was front page news and every newspaper carried an account of the horrific assault 
along with descriptions and photo fits of the attackers. Letters of support began arriving at the vicarage from outraged people, people who had suffered similar attacks, even from prisoners who were shocked at what had happened. And this is where the despicable Sun newspaper once again reared its ugly head, as we've heard from them in the past, haven't we? On the Monday after the attack, with it still being headline news, the Sun newspaper printed a full-length picture of Jill with just her eyes blacked out, and although she was wearing a jumper with her sister Sue's name on it, they blacked that out too. It was not hard for anyone to work out who the victim of this dreadful crime was, and publication of this jeopardised any hope Jill had of maintaining her anonymity. Solicitors acting for Jill did try to stop the coverage, but discovered that the law was on the side of the newspaper. The editor of The Sun at the time, Kelvin McKenzie, said that he'd used the images because a rape victim only earned the right to anonymity once a suspect had been charged with the offence, meaning Jill's life story and the details of the attack could be printed right up until someone was arrested. The senior officer in charge of the case was Detective Superintendent Roy Herridge, who faced the task of finding the perpetrators of a crime that had shocked the nation. The hundreds of fingerprints taken from the vicarage didn't help much, as people were coming and going there all of the time, which was going to be a mammoth task going through them all. Police informants had also drawn a blank. Usually, informants will come up with something gleaned from a snatch of conversation in a pub, but nothing had been said, and nothing so far had been offered to local fences. Media appeals containing the photo fits and descriptions of the men were all over the papers, on the radio and the TV, and which had, however, netted some 1,000 calls in three days. Now, some of these were absolute cranks and totally unconnected with the crime, ranging from people complaining about the lack of respect for the royal family, to the fact that bakers weren't including stone ground flour in their bread. Boggles your mind, doesn't it, what some nonce shit some people come out with. There was even a call from an old lady who claimed to have seen one of the men depicted on the Isle of Wight ferry, but when she was questioned further, she said that it was three years previously. Thanks love, that helps. But amongst the cranks, there were calls that provided essential details because a witness came forward who had seen three men crossing a path near the railway line behind the vicarage on the day of the attack, which acted as a sort of divide between the more and less affluent areas of Elin. Now the crossing place wasn't known outside the local area, so Herridge reasoned that the three men either lived in Elin or had strong local knowledge or links to it. When it was realised that the cricket bat used to inflict the injuries on Michael and David was missing, Herridge guessed that it had to have been dumped, theorising that no one would carry one in March as it would stand out a mile, so he got the raw police recruits from Hendon, who he knew would be keen and not likely to make their own decisions about what to discard, to search for it. Consequently, the cricket bat was quickly found discarded in a garden nearby to the scene, as were sheets of newspaper with muddy footprints on that would be later matched to the suspects. So thinking that the attackers were local, a search through criminal files on the local known wrongdoers soon flagged up a prime suspect of John Ronald Horscroft, 
a known safebreaker who lived close to the vicarage and who was known to be a robbery with violence offender. Two of Horscroft's known associates were Martin McCall and Christopher Byrne, and when another local thief had been questioned, he told police that he had seen the three near to the vicarage on the day of the attack. Now Horscroft had actually been questioned in a local pub just two hours after the assault, but when police had asked the customers if they'd seen anything suspicious, he had claimed to know nothing. Six days after the attack then, Horscroft was visited at home by police at 6.30am. He wasn't surprised to see them, and asked if they were taking him in for attacking an Asian man in Acton some time before. Told that they weren't, when asked about the vicarage attack and the missing £2,000 worth of property, Horscroft replied initially, Nothing to do with me, Mr. Herridge. However, when police went through their records and they found an attack had indeed been reported on an Asian man at his home with an iron bar and a knife and he'd been robbed some days before the vicarage attack, this was the crime that Horscroft was admitting to. Presenting this to Horscroft, it was like opening a floodgate. Within 30 minutes, he'd admitted some 100 burglaries involving some 18 accomplices, including the attack on the vicarage. Horscroft was arrested and charged with just two of the crimes he admitted, the vicarage attack and the assault on the Asian man. When police went to see Horscroft's known accomplices, they visited Christopher Burns flat and found his brother Andrew there, who had been very badly beaten up. He didn't know where Christopher was, but equally didn't ask why police were looking for him. Andrew was taken to the Ealing station where he gave three different events of the events of the 6th of March, but at 7pm that evening he admitted that he had planned the vicarage raid, had helped take property away and who had taken part in it. Under questioning he gave the names of Horscroft, his brother Christopher and Martin McCall. Andrew also said McCall had attacked the Burns and their mother the previous day, breaking Christopher's nose and fracturing their mother's collarbone, and that Horscroft's common-law wife, Jacqueline DeFelice, was the person who had disposed of the knives and the clothing, but that the credit cards, jewellery and an antique clock taken had been passed to a local fence. It later transpired that one of the investigating team had actually stopped to question this man on the day of the attack and had not searched his van, when the property was undoubtedly on board. The fence was later acquitted of all charges. Meanwhile, soon after being brought in, Martin McCall had asked to see the officer in charge, to whom he told he was glad to be caught as he'd been worried sick about the offence. He admitted the attack, but blamed the rape on Horscroft. Christopher Byrne, meanwhile, named McCall as the rapist, but admitted that he had forced Jill to perform oral sex upon him. It was noticed that each of the men had very recent fresh haircuts and were clean shaven, and transpired that all three had gone to the same local hairdresser at the same time to alter their appearance the day after the attack. A detective got a statement from the local hairdresser describing how they'd looked before she cut their hair, which matched the descriptions that Jill had given to police. All four men were charged, Christopher Byrne and McCall with rape and aggravated burglary, Horscroft and Andrew Byrne with aggravated burglary on the Thursday the 13th of March, 
and following an appearance at Ealing Magistrates Court on Friday the 14th of March, remanded to prison to await trial. Five days later, whilst on remand in Wormwood Scrubs, Andrew Byrne was found collapsed on the floor of his cell as a result of injuries received in the beating that had been inflicted upon him, and although hospitalised, weeks later fell into a coma that he was never to awaken from, dying almost four years later on the 20th of December 1990. Martin McCall never faced any charges for the attack on Andrew Byrne, as Byrne had never put his allegations into a statement which could be used in evidence. Eight days after the men had been caught, Michael Sawad and David came out of hospital. Michael said later, When we came out of hospital, I told the family that we had to face the fact that we would be known as the Elin Vicarage Rape Family for the rest of our lives. His words were true. With the attackers safely in custody, David and Jill went on a series of trips, first to Scotland, where they visited David's parents and toured the country with David's dad, staying in a bread and breakfast near Aviemore. It was here that David asked Jill to marry him, recalling years later, The rape did not affect my feelings for Jill at all. I just wish I could have protected her. I hoped it would bring us closer together. I told her I was very sad that had been her first experience of sex, when it should have been something loving. I said, let's make good of this situation, and proposed. I was so happy when she accepted. On Monday the 14th of April, five weeks after the attack, the three victims attended a series of identity parades to see if they could identify the men in a furtherance of evidence. The three were being held in different prisons, so Jill, her father and David had to attend all three separately. The first line-up was at Ealing. Michael went in first, then David, and finally Jill was taken into the room to view the line-up which she was to later recall as a horseshoe of men in light flue boiler suits. She thought Horsecroft might be one of the men, but was not sure enough to positively identify. Next, they were brought to Acton, where the parade was postponed as they couldn't get enough volunteers. And finally, they went to West Drayton Station, where there was just one man in the room, Martin McCall. Jill recognised him immediately, recalling he looked, I quote, young pale and sheepish, and gave a positive identification. Following the identity parades, Jill, her father and David left the following day for a trip to the south of France, but the break was a disaster. Jill was very strained and felt uncomfortable around men. She was also not used to doing nothing, as her usual holidays were taken in Wales, where she helped out at with children's camps, and so she found going from being incredibly busy to relaxing doing nothing very hard. During the France holiday, Jill spent most of the time sat on the beach with her knitting, wearing a coat as it was so cold. Now the holiday should have been time for them to relax and try and get their lives back in some semblance of order, but unfortunately, that wasn't to be. David struggled with depression, having constant flashbacks to the attack and feeling angry almost all of the time. He had applied to join the police, setting his heart on a career in law enforcement, but was now turned down because of the permanent deafness that had been caused in the attack. He also found Jill's composure hard to understand, 
failing to grasp how her strong, incredible faith was helping her. David later told a journalist, Jill came to see me in hospital and I was amazed how calm she was, whilst I was a shivering wreck. She was managing to hold it together while I was falling apart. She told me everything those men had done to her because I wanted to know and she wanted to tell me. Jill must have been falling apart inside, but she never showed it, unlike me. Sadly, instead of the attack bringing the two closer together, the mental anguish they both suffered served to drive them apart, and eventually, back in London, Jill broke off their engagement. David was heartbroken. He said, Before, we were kids just 20 and 21, completely oblivious to the evils of the world. Ignorance was bliss, but once it was gone, everything had changed between us. Although they continued to keep in touch, once they'd broken up, David was only ever to see Jill in person again once. Robert Horscroft, Christopher Byrne and Martin McCaw went on trial at the Old Bailey on the 2nd of February 1987, accused of the offences of aggravated burglary and rape. At the time, as we've said, Andrew Byrne was on a life support machine. All of the offences against Jill became one single offence of rape on the charge sheet. McCall pleaded guilty to all of the charges. Christopher Byrne asked for the rape charge to be dropped and said he would plead guilty to the robbery, but prosecutors refused to do this and he subsequently went on to plead guilty. Horscroft, meanwhile, admitted aggravated burglary. Now, because of their guilty pleas, a full trial wasn't needed, and so a jury didn't have to be present. But Jill was there, as was David. Jill didn't have to attend the hearing, neither of them did, but they wanted to see justice done. The defence at the sentencing hearing made a lot of the men coming from broken homes and deprived backgrounds, and the large part that drugs and alcohol had played in the crime. McCall expressed remorse at what he had done, something the defence made a lot of. Mr Justice Leonard was told that Jill came from a supportive family and was recovering well, and when sentencing, he took into consideration the guilty pleas, the remorse, the ages of the rapists, and the fact that Jill didn't need to be a witness, and was incredibly lenient with the three. Now from the horror that I described before, what would you be expecting? A fair whack in the nick, wouldn't you? The Sawad family, at the time of the case, had been given the impression that Byrne and McCall, at least McCall especially, would get 15 years, perhaps even life imprisonment. Martin McCall was sentenced to just five years for Jill's rape and five years for burglary to run concurrently. Christopher Byrne was jailed for three years for rape and five years for burglary and assault, whilst Robert Horscroft, the gang leader, was jailed for 14 years, even though he had not participated in the rape of Jill. In effect, the judge had given longer sentences for the burglary than the rape, and as unreal and angering as that sounds, the judge, Sir John Leonard, even told them, Because I have been told the trauma suffered by the victim was not so great, I shall take a lenient course with you. Can you believe that? and Jill was in court to hear that. On what fucking planet are you on? You one absolutely disgraceful, insensitive thing to say. Absolutely unbelievable. 
Justice Leonard's decision to hand two of the men lenient sentences for their part in the brutal sexual assault led to a public outcry, which eventually contributed to a change in the law allowing prosecutors to appeal for longer sentences to be passed. It was reported that he even gave more praise to the Islesworth hairdresser for coming forwards and helping identify the men than he commented on Jill's ordeal and her stolen virginity, which was dismissed as of less value than a handful of credit cards. Both Margaret Thatcher, the then UK Prime Minister, and Neil Kinnock, the leader of the opposition at the time, were so appalled by the sentencing that they felt compelled to comment themselves. Whilst Margaret Thatcher expressed deep concern about the crime of rape, Neil Kinnock criticised the sentences given to the three for being too lenient and said the judge showed a great insensitivity towards Jill Sawad. During the House of Commons debate in 1987, he said, While it is necessary for judges to remain detached in the name of the law, sometimes they show an insensitivity to the suffering of victims which is difficult to comprehend. Sir John Leonard quite rightly received a great deal of criticism for his comments and the ridiculously paltry sentences, and when he retired from the legal profession in November 1993, at the age of 67, he made a public apology to Jill, finally admitting that the sentences he had handed out had been too short. He said to have regretted his comment that Jill's suffering, quote, had not been so great, and it was, he remembered, a quote again, the one great blemish on his career, saying, I would be very sad to be remembered as the vicarage rape case judge. However, his words and the lenient sentences he had passed were forever tied to him, right up until his death aged 76 in 2002. And deservedly so, I thought. I mean, there's detached in the name of the law, and then there's that. Following the attack and the subsequent court case then, Jill's self-esteem was very low and she even considered taking her own life one evening whilst on the underground, only changing her mind after thinking how upset everyone would be that their commute home had been delayed. A job working away at a children's summer camp in Wales didn't help as she again considered suicide while she was here. Standing on cliffs near to the sea, Jill considered jumping only talked down by two men who came to her aid. But it was this rock bottom that began Jill's journey back. She was to go on and to begin to date one of the men, Gary Huxley, and was to eventually go on and marry him the following year. With his support, Jill began to see a psychiatrist in an attempt to come to terms with and help with the trauma of the attack, where she learnt not to blame David and her father for not being able to protect her, and to see how hard it had been for them also. She also had a series of support meetings with another rape victim, who she could identify with, and which went some way to helping her cope. Disgusted at the sentences given to the men who had wreaked so much havoc in her life and that of David and her father, Jill complained about them, and in 1987 demanded a change in the law to prevent rape victims being identified. According to the Guardian newspaper, she said, Unless this is done, others may find themselves identifiable by a process of deduction from third parties known to be involved as victims of a crime as I was. Although the sentences of the Elin Vicarage 3 were not altered, 
As a result, one of the big changes that came about after the case was that rape laws were scrutinised and led to calls by politicians and women's support groups to call for changes to the way crimes were viewed. As a result, in 1988, rape within marriage became a criminal offence. It ensured that non-consensual, oral and anal intercourse was also classified as rape and achieved tougher sentencing for rapists. A new law was passed that allowed people to appeal against unduly lenient sentences, which also led to the Press Council amending its guidelines, thus closing the loophole that had previously only granted rape victims anonymity after a suspect was charged with the offence. The loophole that had let Jill down. Following this, Jill went on to devote much of her life to vigorously campaigning for the rights of rape survivors, and from 1990 onwards, worked tirelessly in various roles to support victims of rape and sexual violence, while striving to change the laws surrounding such cases. With the help of a friend, Wendy Green, Jill wrote a book about her experiences called Rape, My Story, effectively waiving her right to anonymity for good. Now the book is a frankly written, harrowing, but very moving read that describes the attack in its aftermath. And it's one that I thoroughly do recommend you reading. It's been an important source in researching the account. After the publication of the book, Jill was featured in an Everyman programme for the BBC, interviewed by presenter Jenny Murray, and the powerful documentary went on to be used to educate judges about the trauma that was suffered by rape victims. But it was only after the book was published that Jill's father Michael really understood how much the rape had affected her and admitted that he had misread her real feelings because, like the judge in the case, he was so convinced by her outward show of coping. He said, On the face of it, she was managing well. It was four years before I realised that Jill had seriously considered suicide. She had seemed to be getting over it, but underneath, it took a lot longer. In 1994, Jill set up a support group for rape victims and their families, also campaigning for a change in law to prevent those accused of rape from cross-examining their victims, but attracted a negative response from feminists in 1997, when in a Channel 5 interview and a Daily Mail article, Jill argued that men in date rape cases should be tried of a lesser offence, commenting, I do suggest the hypothetical victim is culpable, only that she did nothing to help herself. However, it was always with what was best for victims that Jill had at heart. She went on to help to train judges and police officers to understand sexual violence issues. She made countless media appearances recounting her experience, gave talks in schools and sat on government bodies assisting them to make changes to policies. Her decision to speak publicly was driven by a desire to change attitudes towards victims and strengthen the support that they received. Jill's commitment to the cause of those affected by sexual violence saw her become a sexual assault caseworker, calls for judges to make distinctions between the different types of rape, commenting, Some activists will say any rape is violent, but there is a difference where weapons are involved and you fear for your life. And in 2009, spoke out against a European Court of Justice ruling 
that people cleared of crimes could have their DNA wiped from databases within six years of the offence and 12 years for more serious accusations. In 2013, because of Jill's work, new guidelines were published for courts regarding the sentencing of sex offenders, giving greater emphasis on the impact of the offence to the victim. And the following year, along with independent sexual violence advisor Alison Boydell, Jill co-founded the Juries, Jurors Understanding Rape is Essential Standard campaign. Jill and Allison were seeking to make it mandatory for jurors in sexual abuse and rape trials to be informed about the myths, stereotypes and realities concerning those issues. The goal of the campaign was to produce a DVD played in open court that addresses some of the most common myths around sexual violence, the prejudices and victim blaming where often victims didn't get justice because the jurors believed incorrect information that was prejudicial to their thinking even before any evidence was heard. In 2015, Jill blasted proposals to grant anonymity to those who were accused of rape until they're charged, calling it really insulting to victims, a really disappointing move which sent a damaging message when it was proposed as part of the coalition agreement for the 2010 parliament. She was also at the forefront of new rules drafted in to consider the impact on the victim and criticised the way the Crown Prosecution Service dealt with rape cases, saying, I think the issues a lot of people have is the length of time it takes the CPS to get a case to court. Jill once wrote that she had no issues with being tagged as a rape victim, adding, I make no complaint about this tag as it's enabled me to challenge politicians and work for change. But personally, I think the most remarkable act that Jill did was to meet with and forgive one of her attackers, Robert Horscroft, in 1998. A quite remarkable tale that's best heard in Jill's own words. Jill met with Horscroft in July 1998 after his release from prison. Now, reportedly, there wasn't a day during the years following the assault when this guilt-ridden former hardman didn't long for the chance to make peace with the woman whose ordeal he said was to haunt him in his nightmares. Jill later explained why she was willing to forgive him. If I'd carried on hating, it would have destroyed me, and I didn't want those men to have that kind of power over me. Jill told the reporter who had accompanied her why she wanted to meet Horscroft, saying, I have so many questions. You see, I have this picture in my head of what happened that day, and I don't know if it's the right one. Everything happened so quickly, and it's only as the years have passed that the questions have come into my head. I want to know who smashed my father's skull with a cricket bat. I want to know why they beat my boyfriend David up so badly, because the truth is, it's him who needs the apology, not me. Yes, Martin McCall took my virginity. He hurt me terribly. But David nearly died. He had a blood clot on the brain after they smashed his head with a bat. He had a perforated eardrum and they smashed his knees and poured bath salts into his wounds. Even now he can't put it behind him. I suppose I'm lucky because truly I have. She continued. I know Horscroft wants to apologise, but I really don't feel he needs to. I'm seeing him today because he needs it. He needs to say sorry. But I don't feel there's anything to apologise for. 
It's something that happened, and although I didn't like it, I forgave him a long time ago. I said I'd meet him if it would help him. People might think it's strange I'd want to help a man who nearly ruined my life, but I want to let him see that I've forgiven him. Jill went on to explain how she'd come to terms with what had happened once she'd come to terms with the buggery that McCall inflicted on her. Now, she said, I don't think about it at all now, except when I'm doing one of my lectures for the police. But even then it doesn't hurt me. I have to tell various police authorities what happened so they can help deal with future rapes, but I think they get more embarrassed than I do when I go into detail. Maybe talking about it in that dispassionate way is what's helped me come to terms with it. There's no fear attached to it anymore. I wasn't angry McCall had taken my virginity. Of course, I would have liked to have hung on to it for someone I loved. I suppose the strange thing to me is that I've never asked why it happened. I've never asked, why me? Because I know I won't get the answer. So what's the point? I've never asked God why it happened. All I asked of him was to get me through it because I didn't feel I was strong enough. I've learned now that I am, even if it meant going to hell and back and trying to kill myself three times. I just didn't have the energy to keep living in the aftermath. So the first time I tried to end it all, I was going to walk under a train at White City in West London. But in the end, I didn't because I thought it would traumatise the driver. It was also the rush hour and I thought people would be angry at being late home. So I just got on the train and went home. The last two times I was in Wales. First I was going to jump off a cliff. Then I just wanted to walk into the sea and let the water take away all the pain because I couldn't see an end to it. There was no light at the end of the tunnel. I really thought I would never get over it. At least Horsecroft tried to do something to stop the rape. People might say he didn't try hard enough, but at least he made some attempt. But at the time, I didn't feel he was in a position to help. The police have asked me why didn't he use the cricket bat on the man who raped me, or why didn't he phone the police. It probably didn't occur to him, just like it didn't occur to me. I remember I actually picked up McCall's knife at one point, but it never occurred to me to use it on him. Maybe that's how it was for Horsecroft. Looking back, I think he was as scared as I was, because McCall was totally out of control. The two met in a hotel to talk, and when Horsecroft arrived, Jill was breastfeeding her at the time 16-day-old baby son, Fergus. By that time, she already had two other children with her second husband, Gavin Drake, four-year-old Miles and two-year-old Rory. Prior to their meeting, the last time Jill had locked eyes with Horsecroft, she'd been a 21-year-old virgin about to be brutally raped by two members of his gang. When she was told Horsecroft had arrived and had been asked to wait until she finished, Jill said, Oh, it doesn't matter. Remember, he's seen it all before. When Horsecroft came into the room, he was announced, Jill, this is Robert Horsecroft. I know it is, Jill said, smiling and holding out her hand. We've met before. She went on to say to the member of the gang who devastated her life, but who did not rape her, You don't need to say sorry. I'm incredibly happy. I don't spend my days or nights thinking about what happened 12 years ago. I know I've got no right to ask for your forgiveness, Horsecroft blurted out. But you have it anyway, Jill told him. 
You've had it for a very long time. I am so, so sorry, he said. I know it's such a useless word and that it can never be enough for what happened, but I need you to know that I mean it. I know you do, Jill replied, but you don't need to say sorry. It wasn't you who hurt me. It was horror, wasn't it, Robert Horscroft said to Jill, who was sitting just a few feet away from him across a table. McCall was an animal that day. I keep going over it in my head thinking I should have done more to stop him, but he was crazed that day. I truly believe if I'd interfered any more, he would have killed you all, and probably me too. You have to know I didn't come to your house that day to harm anyone. I know I shouldn't have been there, but I'm a thief, not a rapist. You know that, don't you? Jill nodded. I always knew that. I told the police at the time that if I had a friend that day, it was you. I was terrified that day, Horsecroft told Jill. I'm not looking for your sympathy and I'm not making excuses, but I need you to know that I did what I could in the circumstances. Do you remember what I said to you when I took you upstairs to find your jewellery, he asked. Yes, I do, said Jill. You said, remember I was kind to you. And you were. Horscroft told Jill, It would have been the easiest thing in the world for me to go back to thieving. It's what I know, and I was pretty good at it. But I won't. The only way I can show you that I'm truly sorry for what happened to you is by changing my life, by staying clean. And I promise you here and now, I will do that. I will never put another human being through what I put you through. It's important you know that I'm not the man I was 12 years ago. I need you to know I've changed. I've always known how special she is, he later told the reporter who was covering this, what must have been a remarkable meeting. I knew that day at the vicarage. There was a kindness in her eyes for me, even then. She knew I was trying to help her, and she tried to help me. When asked why he wanted to meet Jill, Horscroft explained, I knew I wouldn't be able to get on with my life. I wouldn't be able to move forward until I'd talked to Jill. There wasn't a day went by in that prison when I didn't think of her. Not just because of my part in it all, but because everyone inside thought that because I was part of the gang, I was party to the rape. Every hour someone would bang on my cell door and shout, pervert. I spent nights awake knowing there were prisoners just a few feet away who would take great pleasure in killing me. Once I was moved from Dartmoor to see my mother, who was ill. Days later, the inmates started rioting. If I'd been around when that happened, they would have lynched me. But even though I spent my time among rapists and murderers, I always knew I didn't belong there. Yes, I'm a thief, but I was never like those men. I know I don't deserve a forgiveness. I just thank God I have it. Robert Horscroft went on to marry a woman named Catherine Marley in 1998. He indeed stayed out of further trouble, and he died in February 2012, aged 59. The other two involved in the vicarage rape, Martin McCall and Christopher Byrne, served just five years, eight months, and four years, respectively, for their crimes. Byrne changed his name to Leonard following his release in 1991, and in 1993, married a woman named Maria Petru, who he went on to have a daughter with. However, unaware of his past, when Maria discovered his past crimes the following year, she took their daughter and fled in terror from him. So disturbed was she by what she discovered that it sent her life into a downward spiral, 
and she later took her own life. Byrne himself died in June 2009, aged 44. Martin McCall, the 22-year-old drug addict and main instigator who had initiated the attack on Jill, was released from prison in early 1993, having served just five years and eight months. After being released from prison, he worked for a time as a security guard, including a role at the BBC headquarters in Shepherd's Bush, before he himself died in March 2014, aged 49. Having lived in such fear of them, Jill never forgave Burnham McCall. She was never to even refer to them by name, instead calling them Man 2 and Man 3. Unlike Jill, however, David Kerr couldn't even entertain the notion of forgiving any of the attackers. Physically, he'd recovered from his fractured skull, although, as we said, he'd been left permanently deaf in one ear. But while Jill had her faith and could talk of forgiveness in her faith, David could not believe any god could allow something so evil to happen. In 1998, whilst living in Essex, he told the Daily Mail newspaper that he never shared the need to forgive, I quote, those animals, and that he would still want to kill them. Although they had kept in sporadic touch, David hadn't seen Jill since they'd attended the Old Bailey in 1987 for the sentencing of the three, an awkward meeting given all that had passed between them. While David was pleased that Jill had found happiness in her life, having married and had children, he also envied Jill's strong religious faith, which had carried her through the ordeal. He marvelled at her ability to forgive Horscroft and turn a horrific experience into something positive, enabling her to help others, because in comparison, his own life had unravelled following the attack probably acerbated by the despair and bitter hatred that he felt for the gang of madmen who burst into their world all those years ago. He said in a recent interview, She once said that by talking about her ordeal, she was able to bury it, but I was never able to do that. I'm constantly anxious and paranoid, hypervigilant for the next attack. It still haunts me to this day. While David did himself run a business, went on to marry and have two children, he's plagued by mental health problems and flashbacks, and has been diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder and bipolar disorder, believed to be a result of the brain injuries he suffered in the attack. His marriage failed, he has a trail of broken relationships and unhappy memories behind him, has been sectioned at least 13 times and has been to prison. The entire pattern of his life, it seems, has been marked out since the events of that barbaric episode. He and Jill were never to meet face to face again following the sentencing of the three men, but they did stay in periodic contact. In 1992, Jill rang David's mother, wanting to let her know that Martin McCall was due for release and he had made death threats against Jill, her dad and David, although fortunately nothing came of these threats. David last communicated with Jill in 2007 when he emailed her, asking for help after he'd been arrested for making death threats to another man that he'd falsely accused of cheating with his then-partner, Susan Whips, and that he feared he would be jailed for. David recalled, I told her I was in trouble and asked if she would help me by writing a character reference. Jill was very kind and agreed to do so 
because I'd never received any help or counselling after the attack, but afterwards she said that she didn't want to stay in contact. I didn't blame her, because since that day 30 years ago, our paths have gone in opposite directions. Following Jill's intervention, David was instead given 18 months probation at Basildon Crown Court in Essex. He later said, I'm so grateful to Jill for asking the judge for mercy for me. I often wonder what my life would be like if the attack had never happened. Would I be married to Jill? I think so, yes. We could have been happy together. It was never meant to be for them, though. Aside from working tirelessly to change laws and recognition for rape victims, as we've heard, for many years Jill did indeed go on to have a happy family life, being married twice, once to Gary Huxley, who had come to her rescue in Wales, and then later in 1993 to Gavin Drake, with whom she lived in Hednesford in Staffordshire with her three sons. Sadly, on the 5th of January 2017, Jill suffered a stroke and died of a brain hemorrhage in Wolverhampton's New Cross Hospital, just a few days short of her 52nd birthday. It was eight years after her mother had passed, and less than two years after her father had himself died in 2015, aged 82. A statement from Jill's devastated family said, Jill dedicated the past 30 years of her life to helping other people. It gives us great comfort to know that our wonderful wife, mother and sister was able to help other people to the very end. We would like to thank all those who contributed to her medical care in recent days. We are also so grateful for the many expressions of prayer, love and support we have received. During the funeral service, which was attended by some 250 mourners, and held on the 17th of January at Litchfield Cathedral in Staffordshire. The hymn Bread of Life, which Jill felt had helped her overcome a rape ordeal, was played. Many of those attending the funeral had followed the family's invitation to wear purple to make a statement against sexual violence, and listened as the funeral service was told of Jill's life and works, how Jill had a love of unusual trousers, good music, the Tudors, Agatha Christie and Winston Churchill, and had, her sister said, always lived the family motto to win through. Sue paid an emotional tribute to her twin sister's life-saving work, telling how the attack on her sister at the Ealing Vicarage in 1986, changed all our lives. I felt hurt over the years for all of the publicity, but now I'm glad she did it, because I know there are many people alive today because of what she did. The anthem You'll Never Walk Alone was then played, as self-proclaimed scouser Jill's coffin was carried from the cathedral, followed by a heartbroken husband Gavin and his sons Fergus, Miles and Rory. But to the end, as Jill's life had been spent helping so many, her family were determined that even in death she would want the same, and had agreed to her being an organ donor. On August 12, 2017, a memorial service was held for Jill in Nevin in northwest Wales, a place she held such affinity with and where she'd spent so many holidays, where a grieving widower Gavin scattered Jill's ashes into the sea off Nevin Beach. It was in accordance with Jill's last wishes. Speaking to the Daily Mirror ahead of the service, Gavin said, 
It was always there. It was always something in the background. She lived a full life, a life full of joy and a healthy life. But it was always there. She never fully got over it. I don't think many people do. David Kerr believes Jill should have been recognised by the honour system for her campaigning work. He said, I'm distraught over Jill's death so young. She was so brave and strong. I feel I should have died instead of her. I know I would have died if I'd been sent to jail. I wouldn't have been able to cope. Speaking out and campaigning for other women can't have been easy. Always being reminded of her own rape. And I sometimes wonder what toll that must have taken on her. I'm surprised she never got anything because I thought with all the good work she did, she certainly deserved an award. People like Jill deserve to be recognised a lot more than a lot of the people who do get awards. I think she would have been proud to receive something like that. I think she would have indeed too. What an absolutely remarkable woman who throughout the horror that she'd faced and constantly was reminded of, kept her faith and instead used it to bring light. It's summed up best in an interview with a Daily Telegraph newspaper in 2006, where Jill spoke of the strong Christian beliefs that had helped her during the attack and its aftermath. Sometimes I thought it might be quite nice to be full of hatred and revenge, but I think it creates a barrier, and you're the one who gets damaged in the end. So although it makes you vulnerable, forgiving is actually a release. I don't think I'd be here today without my Christian faith. That's what got me through. It doesn't hurt me anymore. I can be dispassionate. It's history, a story I can tell from a distance. Rape changes your life. You can never be the same as you were before. But it's not a question of whether you can or can't forgive. It's a question of whether you will or won't. Horrific and a difficult listen, yet a remarkable tale this one, isn't it? Jill never wanted to be just known as the Elin Vicarage rape victim, though of course it was a label that was forever connected with her. But instead of forever being defined a victim, she instead used that label to an incredible effect, becoming the first person to ever waive their right to anonymity and to speak out against sexual assault. Her tireless campaign eventually changed the law, as we've heard. She was instrumental in setting up groups such as Hurt, help untwist rape trauma to provide counselling and support for survivors of sex crime, or juries, jurors understanding rape is essential standard, with the aim of educating jurors on the harmful stereotypes that surround rape cases. But perhaps a defining legacy, as journalist Julie Bindell wrote in Jill's obituary in the Guardian newspaper, is that she removed the shame and stigma so often attached to women who are victims of rape, and instead transferred it to the rapists. Jill gave hope to those women by showing that it's not just possible to survive after rape, but to thrive. I think that's nothing short of inspirational. Now Jill's story is a powerful read, and as I said in the episode, I do recommend her book, a link to which can be found within the episode's show notes this week, because I don't know where else best to begin. I mean. Where do you start describing such an incredible woman? That she never got any form of official recognition for her campaigns is criminal itself when you consider some of the bollocks that other people are awarded honours for. 
but she's remembered warmly by so many, by a family who loved her dearly, and by so many others who have been beneficial of the support and understanding in place today that Jill helped create. That's the overall important factor. I thank Louise for researching and covering such a difficult episode to have done. As I said, it was a case I wasn't too familiar with, but one I found a remarkable story that stirred up a whole wave of emotion in me when I looked into it, from horror and revulsion, to anger, to inspiration and admiration for Jill. It was just moving, yet remarkable. I'd love to get your thoughts on the tale this week to see what you thought too, which you can do so in the episode thread up on the show's Facebook discussion group, or by getting in touch through any of the show's social media, I'm always happy to discuss. I'm back in the writing chair myself for the next time around here on the show and all that remains for me to say is that I thank you for joining myself and Louise of course here today. I've been, I still am and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times and I'll speak to you very very soon. Take care all and goodbye for now.